Hello, everybody. Peter Murphy and Chase Clark here with the Buying Tampa Bay podcast. Commercial real estate is on everyone's mind these days. Uh, They're talking about the explosive growth of the apartment market and the potential crash of the office market and residential reuse trends for retail space and class B or C office space. And meanwhile, all over town, we have new class A construction in progress, new restaurants, retail services developments going on, brand new entertainment venture, uh, venues opening up everywhere. You know, it's enough to make your head spin. So today we're bringing back an old friend of the show, Donnie Turner. Donnie, welcome back. You, you left us like six months ago to pursue a career in commercial real estate. So we're stoked to hear all about it and what you've learned and what you know. So fill us in. Yeah. Hey, Peter. Hey, Chase. Um, I want to say really quickly, you know, it's an honor to be invited back onto the show. You know, um, when, when we uh, started the show, uh, yeah, a couple months ago, being a co-producer now to be invited as a guest, it's a great honor. So thank you. Um, so a little um, to fill in on, on what, I, what I'm doing and where I've been. So yeah, for the past couple months, I recently joined uh, Marcus and Millichap. We're a nationwide firm, um, 2,000 agents or so, uh, everywhere from coast to coast, all the way up to Canada. And particularly for me, I'm ultra specialized. I'm specifically in multifamily. So that's multifamily residential. Um, our team, RPH, last year, we are proud to say that we have helped broker the sale of over $150 million worth of apartment real estate here in Florida. Uh, we're Florida specific, and um, we have guys that operate all corners of Florida except Miami-Dade, really. We have guys in Southwest Florida, guys in, um, that operate Ocala, uh, etc. I specifically work into Tampa MSA, so that's Pasco, Pinellas, Hillsborough, Polk, and even up to Hernando. That's what I do. And I, I typically do um, smaller deals, sub 25 units, above five units. That's sort of my space. Um, my typical deal size right now is anywhere from 10 to 20 units. It all depends. Sometimes, you know, you can be in a, in a market like St. Petersburg in downtown St. Petersburg, and a six unit can go for, you know, uh, close to 2 million, 1.5, or, you know, you could be looking at a, at whatever else, a six unit in uh, the university area of Tampa that's going for 750K. So that's kind of my threshold. And that's, and that's what I've been doing so far. Well, Donnie, it's great to see you again, man. And uh, glad you can bring this, uh, this new realm of expertise onto the pod today. Um, it's a, it's two different worlds, right? You know I mean? Residential and commercial, even though, you know, small multifamily is a close cousin to what we do on the residential side. Sometimes when we talk about the details behind these deals, as it relates to financing and who the, who the players are, buyer and seller side and who the brokers are involved, it's just a whole different universe. So, um, we're glad to get your, uh, your new knowledge set and uh, new expertise in that realm onto the pod today. So definitely welcome back to you. And, yeah, appreciate you it. know, we are really interested in the multifamily sector. You know, um, you talked a little bit about, you know, you're dealing with, with anywhere from five to 25 units, you know, kind of on the smaller side, not these giant apartment complexes like Peter was mentioning in the intro that we see popping up all over the place along Highway 54, even in parts of a Fowler Avenue and 301 down in Brandon, um, we've we've had these large national you know developers come in and build these you know mammoth 300 unit complexes. 
So there's obviously value there because there's money behind that. Lots of money, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. Where are your buyers today finding value in these smaller projects that are five, 10, 20 units? Are they looking for just pure cash flow yield or do they have more of a mindset of long-term, you know, uh, price appreciation? Yeah, I'd be happy to speak to that. So um, before I go in, I should probably clarify, you know, there are a couple different kinds of players that do work in my space, you know, um, and so we, we break them up into three tiers. There's tier three, tier two, tier one. Tier three is mostly who I work with and uh, we affectionately refer to them as, you know, mom and pop. That's the good old fashioned landlord. He might, he or she might work in, um, you know, unit B and she's knocking on your door, you know, on the first asking for her rent. So that's, that's the kind of um, client that I usually deal with. You know, they've probably owned the property since the seventies, the eighties, and they've been operating it for 50 plus years. So they obviously, they have uh, different goals and mindsets. They typically, it's been long paid off and they're just holding it for security and maybe for generational wealth for their children. But what I can say is that more and more, what I'm seeing in St. Pete and Tampa is the market is maturing. And what I mean by that is tier two is starting to step in. Now tier two, that is your professional investor. You know, they might run a family office or they might syndicate, right? They might have a group of investors behind them that's going in and, and buying up these sorts of properties that, you know, have been for the most part, usually held by the same owners for years and years and et cetera. They're buying up and investing in these properties. You know, they'll probably buy a 10 unit property in the hopes of buying three more of them, you know, and just trying to get a foothold into Florida. So that's, that's sort of what I'm looking in looking at in my deal space. I particularly, I, I believe it's a good thing. I think that, you know, they're adding a bit more efficiency. They have a bit more, it's a, it's a capital intensive business. You know, everybody knows that. Um, a lot of these mom and pops, the reality is they don't really have the financial resources to upkeep their buildings. You know, it's incredibly inefficient. They don't know um, the market trends. They don't know where to charge on rents. You know, all of the units are, you know, uh, fully original 70s vintage you go you walk in there and you're like wow not a dollar has been placed into this thing and so they're going in they're cleaning them up they're rebranding them they might call it something like the hudson or something cute and and then charge um you know market rate and so that's sort of what i've been looking at in my space so my question on that is, you know, that used to be kind of space that no one wanted to touch right it was very unpopular it was very gritty you're with a big, you know, a top tier commercial firm and you guys are in that space right now. So tell me why, I mean, why is that a place sure. that you guys see value want to occupy and what is the market dynamic that makes someone like you buttoned up guy play in a space that's usually in pretty, you know, pretty uh, nuts and bolts. Well, yeah. And that's, what's interesting, you know, in the past two years, especially the post pandemic, I feel like the reason I was, I was hired onto this firm and I joined this team actually was that this little sector has opened up completely in this uh, market um, before maybe pre 2020, maybe even as early as not that long ago as 2018, a lot of these properties were probably worth 500 grand, you know, maybe 750 if you could get the right buyer, these same properties. Now they're going for a million. Now they're going for 1.5. So firms, like Marcus and Millichap, they've, you know, they're hiring brokers that are going in and they're, you know, trying to create this market. And we're seeing that there's 
I mean, a ton of capital migration. There's a ton of people from California. Um, I myself am originally from California, so I get along well with those guys. And there's a there's a ton of people from New Jersey and New York. They're they're coming down here and they're looking at Florida. They're seeing the, um, you know, the the actual family migration. People are moving down here like crazy, especially Tampa specifically. And they're seeing the low vacancy rates. They're seeing the growth in rents. Even in this year, we're projected to have rent growth, which is, um, you know, I think everybody knows that is an exception for the rest of the country. There's very few markets in the country that's going to see um, even a stabilization in rent or a growth in rent. So very bullish on Florida. I think that a lot of people, they look at this place not only for growth, but also just for capital preservation. They're looking at these properties like little bank accounts and they know and they're bullish on the idea that, you know, these property values aren't going to go down and the rents, they might not explode as they have been in the past two years, but they're going to hold steady. And you can't find that in other in other um, markets, even in very hot markets like Tennessee and um, and wherever else they're slowing down and they're slowing down at a rapid pace because of all the um, development that they've been seeing. So I think in our little niche niche of the world, I think we're still looking pretty good. So in short, you're seeing investors from places like California in the Northeast where they're getting squeezed on yield. Maybe the, the outlook for rent and appreciation isn't quite as good as it is here in Florida. And so they're choosing maybe to sell out of what they have in those markets, bring their capital to Florida where they see much more upside potential you know, down the road, whether it be in yield, and appreciation or a combination of both? 100%. Um, and you know, I think one of the benefits of having a national platform, at least on our end here in Florida, is that we do have offices in the Northeast and in the West Coast. So, you know, I mean, Northeast specifically, right? It, it's uh, incredible the amount of government overreach that's been put <laughs> on these landlords. It's, all, it's become politically favorable to go against them and to um, put uh, price ceilings on their rents to, um, you know, make eviction incredibly hard, et cetera. Very pro uh, renter, you know, and, you know, we don't have to go into politics on this, but the fact is very landlord unfriendly and they're looking at Florida and they're seeing um, the fact that DeSantis just the other week uh, effectively banned rent control in our state, which is, you know, I think anybody in New York would be like, wow, hallelujah, I'm going down there, <laughs> you know? So, um yeah so having said all that a lot of our offices they're seeing people they're divesting right they're selling their um their 10 unit in new york for you know multi-millions of dollars coming down and being able to buy multiple 10 units and being able to see higher yield and being able to see you know just um more landlord friendly policies for the most part donnie here i am like in the housing sector and I was unaware of what DeSantis did about rent control. Talk more about that because our concern was, and I think it's some of the podcasts we did with you, is that local municipalities would begin to put in place rent control measures. And we'd seen things like that happening, I think, from the city of St. Pete, discussions mm -hmm. of, of increased ceilings on rent rate increases. Uh, tell me what's going on with that. Tell our listeners what's happening there. Sure. So the crux of it um, was really in the Orlando market. That's not a market that I'm in, but, you know, they were seeing rent growths as high as 20 to 40 percent. And, you know, that was causing uh, a bit of concern. A lot of people were calling on the local legislature 
to you know stop this madness right whether you know it's is it, is it their fault i don't think so but yeah it's you know it's become something of a political hot ticket to uh to you know try to instill uh you know rent ceilings etc and yeah um i think it was i don't know if it was last week or, or two weeks ago DeSantis came in and yeah he effectively um I don't know the exact verbiage, but he basically made it very difficult next to impossible to do rent control. And on the other side of that, he's pledged over 700 million uh, towards affordable housing, either development or conversion. And that's something that we're seeing um, specifically in our market um, here in Tampa and St. Pete. And, you know, talking about St. Pete, yeah, St. Pete is legendary for um, being very anti-growth, anti-landlord, et cetera. I actually saw in the news, uh, either it was today or yesterday, they've actually passed a law, a very uh, landmark um, zoning law to being able to convert single family into small multi, so two to four units. Something that I would have thought, if you would have asked me a year ago, would be impossible. They were just able to pass that. So it seems that um, you know the government is, is becoming to take action, is beginning to take action on uh, you know the need for housing they may be sorry they did that in 20 years you know we'll see that uh, yeah we'll see that that seems like a recipe for uh, suitcase city number two all over again <laughs> yeah yeah 100 you know you gotta you gotta understand you gotta appreciate everyone's efforts to address this problem and you know legislation unfortunately does seem to be like not the way to do it right allow the allow the open markets to determine the right solution for this and to some degree we're seeing some open market solutions uh, and so that's that's good stuff. But, you know, so tell me, how do how is it, though, that landlords are going to stay ahead? Uh, let's say the, the prototypical landlord coming in from New York, looking at Class C multifamily here in the local area, seeing the, the, the substantial amounts of deferred maintenance that you described early on, the, the unit that hasn't been renovated in 30 years. And how do they make that the prospect of that cash flow? They know they're going to have to make the investment to renovate that property in the near term, probably, right? Or maybe they don't. Maybe they're just looking at that and saying, Class C is totally fine with 30-year-old fixtures and finishes. But it wouldn't seem to me that that's going to be a competitive strategy for staying ahead of obsolescence to allow your units to languish in disrepair or in old-fashioned amenities. And that these guys are going to have to spend some money to make some improvements. So what does that do to their economic models looking forward? Or are they relying on rent rate increases and property appreciation to make up for that reality are they just like saying it's not a big deal because all these other factors are going to be so favorable or are going to be provide such wonderful tailwind that we don't need to worry too much about those renovation costs do you have any insight on that at all sure i think there's probably two major business plans right um one of the big i was talking to uh, a gentleman that runs a family office out of washington the other day and you know, he's actually taking the opposite route. He's buying stabilized properties and he's okay if it's earning, you know, a low five cap because, you know, he's still bullish on the area and he still thinks that the values are going to hold, you know, and yeah, you know, there's, um, there's different business plans, right? There's some people, you know, they're okay with a 5% return. They don't need a double digit return, et cetera. Um, they just, you know, they want the security of the asset. They want to treat, they want to put their money in a place where they still think it's going to be safe. I think there's still a lot of value to that. And, um, a lot of investors are looking for that because that's just not what they're seeing in their market. Um, 
And then I would also say, yeah, there's the typical um, syndicator, et cetera, that's coming in and they're buying these C-class properties. I think it's, it's very contingent on the financing they can get, right? If they can get, um, and that's, that's another thing we could talk about, right? That's been throwing a wrench into everything is, is uh, the craziness in financing. But if they could somehow find themselves in a, in a favorable, maybe bridge debt situation, that this is their business plan, you know, whether it's uh, right or wrong, but they get a low interest only payment, they go in, they put in all the capex and they're able to uh, flip all the units and, and get it renovated, put a nice pretty paint job on it, uh, rebrand it. And maybe, you know, when they got in, literally the rents were still at $550, right? Maybe they haven't had a rent increase since who knows when, and they're able to put those up into 1500, you know, now the numbers make sense and then they can sell it at a stabilized cap, you know, somewhere, you know, in the fives, et cetera. So are you seeing that your investors are underwriting these properties at 5%? I mean, is that kind of where you're seeing the floor is a 5% cap rate? Yeah, it depends on the area. Um, some, you know, some buildings are still trading at, at ridiculous caps uh, and in the high fours. But I think uh, on the kind of stock that I look at, mid fives, um, maybe maybe low fives. Um, it, it all depends. Uh, some of the tertiary markets, like in Pascal, you know, six and a half is what we're looking at, which I think is pretty great for those areas. Yeah. You know, um, you know the university area, suitcase city. Um, you know, we were able to we were able to, to recently uh, trade a property. Now it wasn't a traditional a, a traditional deal. It wasn't an investor that bought it, but it did trade at a five and a half cap. So um, that's sort of what we're looking at. Yeah. So, when, you know, our experience is, you know, underwriting is one thing, right? You know, you underwrite it at a five or six cap. Do you have any experience in following up with some of these buyers, you know, a year or two down the road to see what their real experience is financially on these? Uh, me personally, no, but we do try to keep, um, you know, good contact with our investors and, and see what they're doing. Um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of investors that have bought from us you know, years ago, but you know, the caps back then were a little bit more favorable. Um, we're we're going to see, you know, a lot of people did come in and they were coming in hot and heavy, even as early as last year, buying things at a high four or even a mid four on some of these properties. So we'll see where they shake out. I can't say yet. Yeah. I and mean, this, this is so mind blowing. I mean, because it wasn't long ago when you would look at a class C property as a relatively high risk asset in the residential real estate investment uh, economy, right? And so you expected a premium, a real premium on rates of return to account for that higher risk. Isn't that all what risk and you know rates of return is about, right? Higher risk, you expect a higher rate of return. Now it seems that multifamily, even in class C, is generating rates of returns very similar to what you get in far lower risk, at least from our perspective, class A single family. I mean, this is odd to me, right? I mean, what is it that's allowing folks to feel so secure about class C multifamily, which by many definitions has different risk profiles than class? It seems like obviously the one that would be heavily, uh, I would say, uh, uh, effect, it have a strong uh, impact on that would be the idea of multiple rental streams from multiple doors. But at the end of the day, is that enough to make up for this uh, rate of return parity 
between class C multifamily and now what you can get in class A single family. What are your thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, what I can say to that, well, one thing I will say is, you know, we pride ourselves specifically on my team uh, to be good sellers. You know, we try to achieve the best lowest cap rate for our sellers that we possibly can. Um, and we're able to do that by exposing the asset to out-of-state capital. And you got to remember, you know, to an out-of-state buyer, they have different expectations and they have different goals, right? It's not necessarily purely return-driven. But I think a, a, few, um, a few attributes about the asset class that I can say um, to back to defend it is that, I mean, it's still the darling of the industry right now. People are still looking at the lack of affordable housing. They're still looking at the low vacancy rates. They're still seeing the rent growths. They're still seeing the positive net migration. And the reality is, you know, you buy a 10, 20 unit garden style apartment, they're not building them anymore. You, you purchase one of those bad boys in Pinellas County, you just bought yourself a very rare thing because good luck trying to build another one of those. You know, um, the only thing that most municipalities will let builders build is class A, class A, 125, 150 unit plus. And <laughs> unless you are some big fund, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to do that. So I think the lack of supply and I think the bullishness in the area, you know, it's still a darling of an industry. So, Donnie, speaking of development, are there any secondary or tertiary markets here in central Florida that you're aware of that are still, you know, small multifamily development friendly where you can go in and build quads or build an eight plex or build a 12 unit walk up? I mean, are there places you can still do that relatively effectively here in central Florida? Yeah, I wish I could speak more to that. You know, I'm not the land guy. I'm not the development guy. We do have land guys and, and that's what they do. Um, most of my stuff is, you know, the older vintage, um, you know, in place apartments. But I will say, right, um, that all the development, it's heading north. You know, I mentioned uh, Newport Ritchie and Pascal. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's all we have left to go to is, is going up north into those areas. But I mean, even over there, that's all I see, right? When you, when you drive up the corridor, it's just that class A, you know, yeah. 100 unit plus. I mean, that's, and the reality is it's pretty hard to make it profitable to build that garden style apartment complex these days, right? Uh, almost the only way to make it possible is, is to build 100 unit plus. Well, it's interesting because like, we were talking to a friend that was in town this weekend from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Mm. And, and that's a pretty, you know, it's a small university town there in southern Kentucky, about an hour north of Nashville. And, you know, they seem to indicate that they're in town. You can buy lots, half acre lots zoned for multifamily for around $85,000 still. Wow. And then you could build an eightplex for less than a million bucks right there in the city limits. And that just blew my mind because, yeah. like, you know, you can't even buy an eightplex here. You can't sniff one for, you know, less than a million and a half around here, much less a new construction one that you've been able to build in an urban infill, you know, decent area next to retail. Like, I mean, so we just don't have that kind of market that I'm aware of anywhere here in Central Florida. Uh, some of that's due to zoning. Some of it's due to just the the massive growth we've, we've experienced in the size of our area versus a smaller market like Bowling Green. But to think that there are opportunities like that that exist in 
significant university town somewhere in the south um you know i've heard anecdotally that that is attracting a lot of investment money as well you know there's some of those markets um, where you can achieve a higher yield and potentially be in for well below market value if you're doing development yeah i mean if i if i could get that i would jump on that all day long right um that sounds incredible i would just i would i would imagine i would look I would want to see, you know, what are their trends, right? I know a lot of markets are, are, are seeing declining growth. You know, there was a big burst post pandemic and now that's starting to slow down, um, you know, with being in an interest rate high environment and with the uh, labor markets finally starting to slow down, you know, who knows? Um, I don't know much about Kentucky. Uh, I'm sure it's a great place. Yeah, that's the key, right? You've got to have growth in population and the type of growth that demands this kind of multifamily housing right because it's not everybody that wants to live in a two-bed one-bath garden walk-up built in the 60s right i mean that's that's no. either a location play or it's a a, a particular family demographic no that's 100 right i mean i like to describe it it's a uh, it's middle market housing right um you know if we're if we're looking at you know the nicer classy plug you know, C plus, B minus, uh, garden style, the stuff that the syndicators are flipping, right? It's it's the the young families or the young couples that aren't necessarily buying houses yet. I think that's another thing to speak to the bullishness of small apartment buildings is the fact that, you know, with the mortgage rates staying high, with the builders still getting squeezed, you know, it's gonna be harder and harder for them to buy single family homes. So they're gonna stay in this middle market housing. Not everybody wants to live in an A-class apartment building. Um, not everybody can afford it. Um, and not a lot of people want to stay in a duplex just because, you know, of the typically the demographic in the area. Right. So, yeah, that's those are that's probably correct. And so we'll have a sweet spot that here that this that type of product fills. Yeah. As you've been talking about all of this, though, I have been in this area now for 25 years or so, and I've watched construction and development on both the residential and the commercial uh, sector push north at a frenetic pace and i haven't seen it anywhere close to that moving east or moving south right we have development certainly east we certainly have development in the south but there's nowhere near the amount of development and opportunity as you said earlier in those markets as there is in the north and, you know and so intuitively i'm thinking pasco county which was derided initially for the huge investments it made in infrastructure and giant roadways and all the kind of stuff that it had going on up there and roadways to nowhere for a long period of time it seems to have created you know a, a, a massive opportunity for development that wasn't foreseen and certainly wasn't planned for in south county south of tampa bay and East County, east of Tampa Bay. Is there something else going on there that I might be missing beyond just like the prescience of the Pasco County government to create that kind of a template that would make it prime for development now that we're in now that we're in the state that we are? Is there something else that moves development that way and not east or south? What am I missing as I look at the landscape of Tampa Bay for why all that opportunity is moving north? Do you have any ideas on that? And Chase, maybe you have some thoughts on that too. Um, me personally, no, not necessarily. Um, but you know, one quick note about that market, you know, I've been, uh, working in that market a little bit in Newport Ritchie. It's pretty interesting. Um, just talking about my specific, uh, asset class, you know, the, the middle market, I mean, the rents are still, you know, in the low thousands, 
you know, they, they still haven't exploded like they are in Pinellas and in Tampa. So I find that interesting and I find that to be an inevitability, um, you know, with, with the growth coming. I mean, there's nowhere else, you know, from where I, where I look at it, there's nowhere else to go. They're going to keep building north. They're going to keep going up Veterans Highway. Um, so that might be, you know, just looking at the path of progress, that might be something for people to look at. But I don't know. Chase, do you have any ideas? Yeah, I mean, uh, the road infrastructure has been key, but, you know, one of the keys to development specifically in Pasco were that you had four or five landowners that owned all the land from I-75 to US-19 almost. I mean, you had these Wiregrass Ranch, Starkey Ranch, Mitchell Ranch. You had these guys that owned thousands of acres along that corridor that made it very easy for developers. They didn't have to go and assemble property from, you know, 20 or 30 different people to build a thousand unit home development. You know, they could talk to one guy and get, you know, 500 acres and, and go to town. So I think that definitely helped along with, you know, the Pasco government. Um, really, you know, they were derided for being negligent early on, right? I mean, they were, they were allowing all this development without infrastructure aside from roads. I mean, the, the state put the road in, not the county. And um, now they've, you know, caught up with impact fees and things like that in order to, you know, establish that infrastructure up there. But um, it is wild driving down Highway 54. I mean, you got a six lane highway. I, I think they're adding like a new stoplight every week on that thing. And then uh, traffic counts have got to be in the in the five digits at every intersection, you know, and uh, crazy opportunity for retail with all that housing going in. And I mean, I don't know how many thousands of apartments are up there, but I know that there's like four or five mega complexes under construction right now, class A, you know, along with all the residential. So really phenomenal development corridor, probably unlike anything we've seen in the state of Florida in a long time, uh, concentrated on one highway like that. Right. It's really pretty remarkable to watch. And it seems like every couple of miles, not only do you have a mega apartment complex, but retail seems to know something we don't because they're building to beat the band, a new grocery store anchored uh, shopping mall or a distribution center from someone very large. I mean, that seems like that punctuates the landscape with far too much density. Right? <laughs> it's like, do they need a Publix every, every three miles? And that's what they have up there. And evidently, they do because every one of those public's parking lots is packed. So it's really remarkable to watch all of that come together in that market and to be a longtime resident of this area and to see that. And of course, all my all my bo my neighborhood boys are, are bemoaning it and deriding it for like, you know, how horrible it is. But they now have a Chick-fil-A less than three minutes in every direction of them. So, you know, they're happy about that. So anyway, that's that's just a, a side conversation, really wanting to know if you guys had any. I, so I guess the point that you're making, Chase, is that the guys in the East County and South Camp County, developers didn't have similar land acquisition uh, dynamics to be able to kind of assemble parcels as readily. And we didn't have the same kind of investment in state road development in those areas to allow for now local development to come in hot and heavy the way it is in Pasco. Yeah, you know, and some of that is environmentally impacted. You know, you've got the green swamp, you know, to the east uh, near the Polk County line that's going to prevent any kind of road construction or development in that corridor. You've got the Hillsborough River watershed that has prevented Highway 54 from going any further east than Zephyr Hills, you know. Um, and so you're, you've got that artificial barrier there at Highway 301 um, where it's very difficult to go further east. And then if you come south from there, 
you've got land that's divided up into five acre lots and there's thousands of owners of that land very hard to assemble land even the strawberry farmers don't have plots that are any bigger than 100 acres left in hillsborough county um so very very limited now and and they were running into this challenge when they were looking for sites to build a new race stadium is you just cannot find large chunks of land in hillsborough county anymore uh, i think someone told me anecdotally the other day there's like a dozen parcels of land that are left that are privately owned that are larger than 100 acres hmm. in this entire county so that's that's very interesting to think about you know when it comes to development because you don't need 100 acres to do a development but you do need significant chunks of land if you're going to build these mixed use, you know, multi-purpose type master plan developments that people really like to build. And like we're going to have built up there at Highway 56 and uh, 301 here shortly in the Three Rivers Ranch, which is starting to sell off its thousands of acres of land there along 301. Um, they're building this nice new Tampa Palms-esque master plan golf community up there on several thousand acres. So um, there's a few pockets left like that, but not many. Right. And that's the Eastern core. That's the Eastern anchor of that whole corridor. Right. So we're talking, yep. still talking about the same linear geography. Uh, so fascinating stuff. And you're right. Big environmental constraints out East and out South would really direct the growth North and South. So Tony, let me ask you this question as it comes back, bring it back to the class C asset space. Are owners able to transition their properties from class C where they're like, they buy their, that's a lower end product. There's some additional risk exposed there. How much action are they able to really kind of input on these properties to transition it along the path of progress from class C to class B, for example, can you, are you seeing any owners who are making the kinds of improvements they would need to make to really advance their assets? And is that worth it financially for someone to improve? a class C asset into a class B asset. Can it even be done? And is it worth it economically? Are you seeing any kind of resales of what now are class B assets that kind of looked like they once were a classic class C opportunity? What are you seeing in that sector? Are you seeing anything? Oh, sure. You know, I've been focusing on, you know, the Pinellas County area. So, um, you know, St. Pete, et cetera even uh, areas like Dunedin and everything else where, you know, I haven't been in this market long, but I've been hearing from a lot of people just how much it's changed, right? Uh, in these markets and just the, the amount of growth and everything else and all the development. So um, to, I guess to, to further your question, so were you asking how are they making these improvements to flip it into well, B or yes. they're able to? Yes. And like, will, will a class C area like what's uh, derisively known as suitcase city, right? Or sure. Sulphur Springs here in this central area of Tampa near USF. Is there chatter that that area can move out of that very challenged dynamic that it's in right now to be a more stable investment asset, more of a class B community, right? Now I know that you've got some class A construction going out along Fowler Avenue, which is the main corridor through that area where USF has a big presence as well as Moffitt. And that's where the old university mall is. And now all in and around that area, you've got class A, but that's right on Fowler. Will you see what is firmly class C stuff and very economically challenged stuff that's a little off Fowler? Will you see that start to move up the food chain? 
Will you see quality dig in deeply to that area? And should people, should investors be considering buying that stuff with the hopes that that's going to be just a, a majorly better market to invest in a few years from now? Does that question make sense? No, it does. Um, and I don't know how much I could speak to it. You know, um, yeah, that area, I think you guys would know more than I do. It's, it's, it's just been, it, it has that reputation and reputation is sort of hard to shed. You know, if you look at even um, Ebor, right? That's, that's an area that a lot of people have been hoping in and putting a lot of money into to try to change. And it's just, it's been difficult. I don't, I don't know why, I, I can't speak to why, but it seems that some areas are just more akin to, um, you know, you could call it gentrification. I know that's kind of a, a loaded term, but, you know, to sort of gentrify. Um, another neighborhood, right, is Seminole Heights. A lot of money's been going into there and a lot of people have been, um, you know, working to, to flip that area. And I think it, it might happen. Um, a classic uh, success story is Hyde Park, right? That's, that's an area that I know was solidly uh, pretty rough. And now it's, I mean, it's not B anymore. It's solid A. I don't, I don't think anybody would argue with that. Um, so for the university area, who, who knows? Uh, my job is to sell uh, future cash flow, is to sell optimism. Um, but if I was to advise a client um, that is looking to invest in that area, I would definitely tell them, you know, I, I would buy uh, an asset that's a, that has a suitable cap rate, that does have room for value add. Um, would I advise them that, would I write it in my pro forma that it would flip into a class B asset? Probably not. Um, but definitely something I would, you know, something that's unstabilized to look to stabilize it, you know, maybe in the underwriting to not over improve. And, you know, it, it sort of sort of look at their business plan. Do you see yourself owning this in 10 years? If you do, you know, maybe it'd be worth it, you know, five years down the line to reevaluate the area. See what, what has happened, you know, with this class A development, et cetera. Is it worth it to put even more CapEx and then to rebrand this asset? And, you know, depending on the units, right, and depending on the street, I think when areas start turning, I think you guys could attest to this, it almost becomes street by street until it fully turns. And that's something that is exciting about our market, Tampa and St. Pete, is that there are areas that are turning, but it kind of turns to street by street. Yeah, you know, one thing that is interesting to me, I kind of see a common thread in some of those areas that you mentioned, like some of the challenges in Ebor are product challenges, right? You've got a lot of small homes down there on small pieces of property, you know, where they're not conducive to families, right? They're conducive to single professionals, maybe young couples. But once they start to grow a family, they can't live in Ebor anymore. They feel like they don't have enough space down there. We've got two bed, one bath, one bed, one bath, predominant, you know, foot, foot, footprint or floor plan units in uh, Suitcase City. And are we looking at potentially a situation where that's just going to be an obsolete product or a product with a ceiling on it, right? So the only option becomes to, to elevate that area is complete redevelopment, right? Mm. You can't take a, a 1,500 square foot duplex with two one units on each side and turn that into Hyde Park, right? Sure. Um, you've got to have nice single family there or you've got to have more upscale multifamily it's just, you know, there's a ceiling on that product and it's only ever going to be what the ceiling will allow it to be, right? We don't see duplexes scattered throughout Hyde Park, right? We don't see quads. We don't see, you know, there are some nice garden walk-ups down there, right? And there's some 
nice, gigantic single-family homes that were grandfathered into a multifamily arrangement. But by and large down there, you see beautiful, large, single-family homes on decent-sized lots with nice fenced yards and you know walkable streets and things like that, close to retail and restaurant, um, which is another thing like the university area seems to have struggled with is how to how to coordinate these efforts, right? And the university mall development is so interesting to me because it seems like they're trying, right? They're pushing so hard. We've got a class A apartment complex going in there at the university mall. We've got nice restaurants like Longhorn, Portillo's out front there, really nice looking gas station. We'll see what will become of the half torn down retail at this point that used to be the mall, right? Um, but beyond that, you go three or four blocks behind the mall and you're into this product, right? That is going to be obsolete if you're talking about elevating it from, from C to B plus or A minus, right? No, 100%. I mean, I think, you know, there's always going to be a demand for affordable housing, right? And I think a lot of people would argue we, we need more of it. You know, yeah. I remember um, in, in certain markets, you know, I'm just just speaking from my experience back in California, right, where um, duplexes these days, you, you know, two million dollars, a million dollar unit. Right. And, you know, performing like at a four cap, et cetera. So there are areas like that where they, you know, it's just it was just by the force of nature of Silicon Valley that it kind of just got bulldozed over, even if they're duplexes. They still command high rents. And I'm not saying that will happen to university, but, um, you know, I think. It's going to take a catalyst, right? Some kind of yeah. crazy catalyst to make that kind of thing happen, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So well, it's, we'll a fascinating, it's a fascinating market trend to observe and to be a part of. And so I love that you're in it. I love that you're watching it closely. Uh, are there any other, well, insider information, anything that you can – that would be helpful to some of our listeners right now about, you know, areas of trends. Are you seeing any trending in the space uh, where people are starting to pay a lot of attention to? And, uh, you know, we ought to we ought to assume that this kind of a, a trend will lead to something good, something uh, some some kind of a sustained investment growth for this sector. Are there any are there any things that people are doing to their properties uh, in the areas of renovation? That might be that might be indicative of a trend or um, certain like key hot spots within our market that you see just a lot of money going into uh, anything like that at all, Donnie, that you've seen out there, uh, given your rather extensive now marketplace perspective. Um, what anything that we should watch out for and tell our investors about? Sure. Um, well, let me think. I think um, you know I've been I've been operating mainly in the Pinellas County, right? And a lot of, uh, I could say on the negative end, a lot of pressure that's been happening on these um, landowners is, is insurance. And insurance has been coming in hot and heavy and it's, it's been causing a little bit of distress. So um, talking about um, opportunity, et cetera, some of these properties you know, might be coming up on the market and fairly soon. Um, I've been, I've been working a lot along the shoreline, you know, uh, talking, you know, Treasure Island, Madeira Beach, Reddington Shores, et cetera. And, um, there's still very high demand for those areas, um, despite the insurance costs and mainly because of, uh, Airbnb and if it's possible to Airbnb. And 
So that's another thing. It's become a perfect storm. Like if you don't have the zoning for the Airbnb, if your insurance costs have literally tripled, you know, there's there's been owners in those areas that have been, you know, hit very hard. Um, and that's been causing a bit of distress. So that could be uh, something of opportunity, you know, if that if that could be turned. Um, you know, and I still think there's still plenty of these assets, these uh, I'll call them legacy assets where uh, the mom and pops have been holding on to them for uh, decades um, throughout the area in Pinellas County that, you know, if if somebody could um, could go in there and, and turn the units and, you know, reposition the asset, that's 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 a ton of opportunity as well. Um, speaking to renovations, I guess, you know, uh, well, putting in necessary capex, a lot of times there's a lot of deferred maintenance. So being able to have the resources to fix up these properties and, and bring them up to date. Yeah, updating the kitchens, just, you know, these, these basic things that you do, um, even, especially for single family, right? That, that, that's, that's what the tenants want to see. They want to see the updated flooring, the cabinets, the, the you know, the countertops, et cetera. And paint goes a long way. <laughs> Fantastic. You know, it was very interesting and, and that's a very helpful perspective that for a while there, we were seeing a lot of beach towns along the coastline really wrestle with the issue of whether or not they would continue to allow short-term rentals. Mm -hmm. And ones that we're quite familiar with that have historically allowed for them were coming up for municipal votes on whether or not that was allowed. And some of those, a lot of those have been postponed due to some legal challenges, but we know that that's a headwind. Um, we know that the insurance issue is a big headwind for the owners of investment properties. We know that rising HOA fees are going to push a lot of opportunities uh, to the fore. And so, you know, we've been telling our clients, and it sounds like you are too, watch this space. Likely, whatever market distress is in the works right now, and there might be some of it before the year is out, is going to create a fairly decent buying opportunity for some who just are sick of it or can't weather it. And so hold your cash at the ready and uh, it looks like some interesting opportunities will arise before too long. So, yeah, I would say so. Um, you know, in those markets, your zoning is, you know, if you if you got yourself some commercial zoning or if you can possibly work with the municipality and convert it into commercial zoning. I know there was a client that it was zoned multifamily, but he was sandwiched by hotels, by commercial zoning. And it once was a hotel and he was able to get it flipped to get it grandfathered in. And that was able to explode the amount of money he was able to command for selling his asset. So, you know, commercial zoning on those uh, beach properties, it's, it's as good as gold. Um, and if you if you don't have it and if you can't have it um, and just within, you know, hopefully something happens with this insurance it could be sitting on a ticking time bomb. Yeah, yeah well, you that's know, sorry. You know, another piece of legislation that we talked, you know, that I think I signed around the same time as this rent control uh, ban was this tort reform as it relates to insurance. Um, is there any is there any advice or any uh, optimism that you can share with clients right now in regards to where you see that taking insurance premiums possibly for them? Because we know that that, you know, tort issues were some of the biggest drivers of the increases in these insurance premiums. You know, they like to blame the hurricanes, but in reality, all the experts said, no, it's the lawyers that are the problem. Yeah, I can't speak too much to that. I think you, you know as much as I do. Um, I've been telling people, you know, you need to underwrite it, 
right? You need to be extra conservative when it comes to that insurance expense because a lot of people, they don't went out of state capital, they don't take that into account. So yeah. definitely write that in and, um, you know, be pessimistic on that front. Don't expect it to go down. And um, for the owners that are, that are feeling the pressure, you know, um, I think a lot of people in my space, the mom and pop space, they're overly afraid of vacancy. And I'm not really sure why. I think it's a little irrational, especially in our market. But hey, you know, um, they don't they don't have sometimes they just don't have quite the perspective. You know, I, I see it as a market perspective. I see all kinds of uh, properties and I look at all kinds of rent rolls. They only see their property and they only see their rent roll and they only know what business has been done, you know, for the past couple of decades. Right. But I think um, being unafraid of the vacancy and having to uh raise the rents because that's just the reality well with the utilities going up with insurance going up you know you you are fully justified to raise your rents and to pass that on to the tenant until you know these have been uh resolved so that's, Donnie, that's really speak, all i could say yeah yeah speak a little bit more to that because i was very interesting that you said that people being too afraid of a vacancy right so is what you mean there is that existing owners of properties are reluctant to raise rents because they're afraid of driving a tenant out of that property and then sitting too long on the market with a vacant unit. Is that kind of what you're saying? Is that irrational fear in your perspective? That, I, I think people uh, put too much credence on it. I think people are a little too afraid of it. Um, you know, as we spoke to earlier in this podcast, one of, one of the main drivers and one of the main reasons why I'm so bullish on Tampa, Florida specifically is the fact that we're still seeing net migration. People are still moving here. You know, I don't have the statistic offhand. I should, but you know, we're, we're one of the highest growth markets still as of now. I think there's a couple markets, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth comes to mind in Texas, but a lot of other markets that used to be uh, sister cities to us, Phoenix, Nashville, they've been slowing down, you know, but we're staying strong and so that, that that's sort of the deal. I, I wouldn't be afraid of vacancy right now. I, I would be um, afraid of, you know, staying above water. That's that's what I would say to a lot of my my clients. Um, and, you know, and, and we, we provide a lot of tools to to keep that in mind. You know, one of the things we do a lot is uh, rent comp surveys in, in my specific little niche, you know, C class uh, sub 25 unit apartment complexes rents are sort of inefficient, right? They don't know what their neighbors are charging. Zillow isn't a very good resource, you know, like single family homes, et cetera. There's no data. There's not a lot of data. And what they typically know to do is stick a sign out in their front yard and hope somebody calls. So what we do is we try to remove some of that, um, you know, we try to shed more light on it. And we, you know, we call around and we create a rent comp survey, literally calling owners, hey, so, you know, if I was to apply for an apartment complex, what would you charge me, right? And then going back and then showing people and they could even use this rent comp survey. And, you know, I would even express to them, I, I mean, I wouldn't, ex I wouldn't expose my financials, wouldn't expose my expenses, but, you know, um, are, be able to articulate to your renters, these are what my neighbors are charging, you know, it's substantially more and the insurance costs are, are, are rising. I'm sure you can understand that you know, there needs to be a rent increase just to be able to stay above water. I think, um, you know, landlords should keep that in mind. 
and you know um and that that might sound uh, a little controversial maybe renters don't want to hear that i'm a renter i live you know in a b class 150 unit complex that was probably built in the 80s and i can tell you it's still more affordable than buying a house right now that's the reality you know um going into a six percent mortgage and i don't want to get an insurance policy right now no pass that on to the landlord let the landlord deal with that you know it's still affordable that's the reality so if you're a landlord and you're listening to this i would definitely keep that in mind great stuff i donnie this has been just an excellent conversation a great primer on some of what's going on in this sector and i hope a, a real a thought stimulator and interest stimulator for our listeners in entering this asset class so Tell us, uh, tell our listeners where they can go to learn a little bit more about you and what you do. Sure. Um, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm not very active. I should be more active. Donald Turner. Um, you know, you could also email me donald.turner at marcusmillichap.com or, and whatever else. Great stuff. Yeah, if anybody's out there interested in getting in on some of these mom and pop deals, uh, they've got a great uh, drip list. They can uh, put you on to send you out some information on new properties too, right, Donnie? Yeah, that's right. You know, if you email me, we could and express interest, we could get you on that email list. Be happy to. Fantastic. And of course, HomeProp is your go-to manager, hopefully for some of these small assets like this. So what we've talked through here. Is certainly something that we have the experience to keep performing for you as an investor buyer and uh hopefully we can minimize your uh you know, maximize the output of your somewhat passive investment here in class c multifamily no I, I love that you know let me let me tell to your listeners you know there's no one better in the business than home prop you know you want somebody that's going to you know get up to bat for you to use a baseball analogy you want somebody that's going to be willing to stand up and you know, to look at the rent rolls, to look at the expenses, to know what they're doing and to be able to justify it. And, you know, home prop, these are your guys. Reach out to them. Wow, that makes me feel so good that you still say that even now that you've moved on to bigger and better things. So, Donnie, yeah, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. And we look forward to keeping staying in touch with you into the future. Yeah. All the best, Donnie. Thanks. Definitely. Pleasure.